Let me start out with some stuff I've been writing, and then we'll just jump in. Origen, who was an early church father, uh, was from the late 100s A.D. to the early 200s A.D. Origen. He is well known as one of the first theologians of the early church. One of my favorite things about Origen is his hermeneutic, which is the word hermeneutic means simply how you interpret the Bible. So one of the things I like about him is how he interpreted the Old Testament. And, uh, and let me just read a quote from you. This, is gonna, this seems really random until I get into what we're going to talk about today. Now, I'm going to give a caveat. I don't agree with everything Origen uh, taught or said, but I think how he looked at the Old Testament was really brilliant. And so I'm going to read this. Um, this, was from, this, is, this writing is from about 190-ish A.D., And uh, so this is from translated from Latin, but anyway, here we go. This is what he had to say. He said this. Uh, Let me make sure I'm on the right page. Sorry. Here we go. This is what he said. They, who are heretics, he's writing to, they believe as they do because they are ignorant how to interpret any passage in Scripture except literally. And I'm going to explain this in a second. If this is not so, let them show how it is just, hey, what's up? Let him show how it is just in a literal sense for the sins of the parents, for example, to be visited on the heads of the children and on the children's children after them to the third or fourth generation. We, however, do not understanding, we being the church, do not understand such sayings in a literal sense. But as Ezekiel taught when he uttered his well-known proverb, we inquire what is the inner meaning of the proverb or the scripture. Further, they, being the heretics, ought to also explain this. How can he, God, be just and the one who rewards every man according to his actions, according to his deeds? When he punishes earthly-minded men and the devil, though they have committed nothing deserving of punishment. For if, as these men say, they are beings of an evil and ruined nature, they could not do anything good. And as for their calling him as a judge, he would seem to be a judge not so much of deeds as of natures. If it be a fact that an evil nature cannot do good, nor a good nature do evil. And so that may not make any sense to you, but really what I wanted to, wanted to hit on was this first sentence that he gave. Heretics believe as they do. This is origin in the first century, second century. Believe as they do because they are ignorant of how to interpret any Bible passage except literally. What does he mean by literally? What he means by literally is this. This is a library book, so that's why it's got all this tape all over it. But um, What he means by literally is this. It, he's saying it's, it is ignorant to look at the Bible and go to Jonah and say, well, my Lord, Jonah got swallowed by a fish. Can you believe that? He's no, 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 no. There's a story there. And it's not somebody got swallowed by a fish and lived underwater for three days, and then the fish threw up, and he was there at the place that he needed to be. Did that happen? Maybe. I don't know, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to ultimately point to Christ. Jonah was in the belly of the earth, in the belly of a well for three days, and at three days he was spit out of the well that he was held in for three days in the place where he was supposed to be. What's the place where he was supposed to be? Nineveh, which was a wicked city that the Lord redeems. Does that that sound familiar, right? 
Yeah, it's pointing on Jesus. And so what we do typically is we'll go into passages in the Old Testament and we'll say, my Lord, the Lord was angry back then. And we'll miss all the depth of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is not saying that. So, so to read something literally is to read something as the author intended. So a lot of what we say is literal reading is actually what is more accurately called historical reading. Meaning, we believe the Old Testament is a story of the history of people and God and the earth. The Old Testament is the story of God and man. So, as much as God would love for you to know the exact date that the creation happened, that's not why we have the Old Testament, for example. Now, I realize I'm like undoing everybody's faith at this point because y'all believe that, you know, everything's literal and that America's in Ezekiel and um, the rapture's happening next week and, you know, all that other fun stuff. But, but you know what I'm saying? But I'm going to teach you a little bit. I'm setting all this up like I am because when we go to Hosea 2, there is some stuff buried in Hosea 2 that we'll completely miss if we're reading it on the surface and then moving along. So I'm giving you a lot of heads up so that when we jump in, you can have your minds ready to, ready to read it. Origen taught, as well as many other theologians after, that the way we read Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is in light of Jesus. Therefore, its purpose is not literal or historical or a surface-level historical account. Rather, it is deeper and spiritual that requires the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to lead us into it to ultimately find Jesus. This is so important. Our language is a surface-level language, English. We say what we mean in English. Hebrew is a depth language. You say what you mean and you also mean what you did not say in Hebrew. So you say what you mean, but then also buried under what you just said is a bunch of different things you didn't say, but that you also mean. <laughs> okay? So why is, why is the creation story in seven days? Because seven is the number of completion and perfection. Right? So we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and said, or specifically Genesis 1, and said, uh, what God, this is the story of what God created on day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, he rested. Sure, maybe. You know what I'm saying? But, but no, no, no. what the Lord is trying to tell us is when creation took place, it took place exactly as it should be. It was complete. And you, you see what I'm saying? That, that's, that's the Hebrew language. The, the, biggest, the way the church would ultimately be redeemed in the West is if we all learned Hebrew. But since that's not the case, the Lord has blessed us and given us gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and preachers. So here we are. Um, Hebrew is a layered language. The Old Testament uses metaphors, symbols, word structures, numbers, etc. to say so much more than what you just read. However, all of it ultimately points to Christ. So Hosea 2 is a perfect example of this. As we read this, I want you to look for the deeper meaning of what is happening. Okay, so I'm going to read this. And as I read it, I just want you to start hearing some deeper stuff than what you're hearing. Okay, make sense? Probably not. Okay, but we'll do it and I'll help you get there. And it's going to be awesome. Here we go. Hosea 2, verse 1. Um, do y'all, first off, first off, do you remember what's happening leading up to Hosea 2? 
Backstory. Hosea is a prophet. Go back and listen to our last message. Hosea is a prophet. The prophet of the Lord is visited by the Lord, and the Lord says, I want you to go marry a prostitute, Gomer. Okay? So he goes, he finds Gomer, a prostitute. He brings her into the family. It is a major miracle for Gomer. Major miracle. Gomer has gone from the slums to being completely taken care of and provided for the rest of her life. Huge blessing. She has children, and that's where the story picks up, okay? So Hosea goes and marries a prostitute named Gomer. Gomer has children, and this is where the story picks up. Hosea 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who, listen, this is huge. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me food and water, wool, linen, olive oil, and drink. Therefore, I will block her path in thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than I am now. Verse 8. She has not acknowledged that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. This is huge. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen and intended to cover her naked body. This is my favorite verse lately. Listen. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I'll get back to that. Verse 11. I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. Then the second half of Hosea 2 picks up. And we see a dramatic difference. 14. Therefore, because of all of that, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, in the wilderness, I'll give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which means trouble, so the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There, she will respond the word respond there means actually sing. The other translation is. So there she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of Baal from her lips. No longer will the names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant 
for them. That language is, is so interesting. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, bow, excuse me, bow, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies. They will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel means God plants, okay? I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And right after this is when Hosea goes to buy his wife back who has ran away from home. So I, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff here, but let me just give you some context, and then I'll jump into what Hosea 2 is telling us. Everybody good? All right. Hosea was a prophet somewhere in the mid-700s B.C. His prophetic career led up to the Assyrian siege of the northern Israelite kingdom in 722 B.C. Most people don't know this. They read their, New, their Old Testament and they get confused. So the, the Israelites were one group of people in the Old Testament. But with David's grandson, when he becomes king, he's a wicked king. And the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom split and become two kingdoms. And so after that happens, if you're reading your Old Testament in the first, in first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, when that happens, you'll see the northern kingdom referred to as Israel and the southern kingdom typically referred to as Judah. Okay. So there's two kingdoms that have split off. The Assyrians, who were a... I'm going to teach this at some point. Man, I got so much I want to teach y'all coming out of sabbatical. The Assyrians were a mega power, superpower like group of people back in that day. So the Assyrians, because of where they're located, they come in and they take the northern kingdom captive. Okay? So they're exiled. The northern kingdom, Israel, is exiled to Assyria. Hosea was a prophet in that northern kingdom, and he was a prophet all the way up until Assyria comes in and snatches them out. Y'all good? He was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Um, I just explained the kingdom split. I had that in my notes. Uh, the northern kingdom had turned to Baal worship, which was brought in by non-Israelite people. This started, if you remember the story, you remember Solomon, the son of David, Right? And he has, was 700 wives and 300 concubines. Is that right? 700, 300. Yeah. And um, most of the wives that he marries are non-Israelite wives. So they come in. They are foreign wives that he marries. They come in and they introduce Solomon. And as the kingdom goes, so goes the king. Or excuse me, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom, right? They introduce the king to foreign god worship. And as that happens, suddenly Israel is brought into worshiping foreign gods. So Baals, even though they were kind of around even before this, but they really come into the story when the king gets intimate with a group or a foreign, I want to say this right, when the king gets intimate with a culture that is other than the culture that he is in, it produces a kingdom that worships gods that they were not designed to worship. 
I like how I, that's, that's what I wanted to say. You see that? Solomon was called to marry Israelite, let me say it like this, an Israelite woman. Instead, he marries multiple people from multiple cultures that he was not designed to get intimate with. And that produced an entire kingdom that bowed down to things that it wasn't designed to bow down to, Salah. Okay, so you see Hosea 2 is now starting to speak to 2022, right? Because that's what we did. That's what the church did. Babylon promised us that if we would just get intimate with another culture, we'll start to produce like nobody's business. And it worked, and we did, right? We're just not the church anymore. And we started settling for crowds because that's what Babylon told us is, is success rather than the presence. You know what I'm saying? And so we'll say the most successful churches on earth are the biggest churches on earth when the big, the big Lord, when the biggest churches on earth are the ones that usually lack presence the most. And we'll say the, the houses that host the greatest amount of presence are the smallest because they're smallest in number. And there's a shift that's going to have to take place. I don't think it might not be in our generation, but there's a shift that's going to have to take place where we begin to look to the places where the presence is heaviest to determine the success of the church. So we say the church is losing people by the droves. No, it's not. The mega model is losing people by the droves. The church is growing. Amen. All right. Went over like a lead balloon. That's good. So Hosea was a prophet. Israel was in Baal worship. They get captured into Assyria. Uh, They believed that Baal was their provider. So you'll see some of this language, and I'll point it out in a second. But because they shift into Baal worship, they start to believe that the Baals were the ones that provided for them. So they would bring offerings of what they had rather than to the Lord. They would bring offerings to Baal because they were fully indoctrinated with the belief that Baal was the one providing for Israel. And that's what got their tails kicked later. Do you know what Baal means? I've taught this before, but this is is old school dream. Does anybody know what Baal means? Baal means my master. It's literally what Baal means. My master. For Baal to be your master, you must be a slave. You don't call your dad master. You call your master master if you're a slave to that master. So do you see what Israel has started to trade? Israel has traded marriage with a groom for servanthood to a master. And if you contrast that with the bride and marriage language at Sinai when the Lord comes down to marry Israel, and then you start to look at the story of Hosea and Gomer, where Gomer, the prostitute, is married to the prophet and comes into his family household and is therefore a part of the family eternally, you start to see that there is something Hosea is talking to that is way deeper than just Israel, you've lost it. 
He's speaking to something in the human mind that ever since Adam and Eve, for some reason, we cannot allow ourselves to be fully bought into the idea that we're actually in covenant with Yahweh. Somewhere along the way, we get uncomfortable with that and we start retracing to slavery, right? Because at the end of the day, we still believe we're slaves. You might not believe you're slaves like physically, like you're a slave to somebody in America, but we live our lives as if we fully believe that we're still enslaved to something. Let me give you an example. You and I typically live enslaved to our jobs. Right? I mean, who, okay. who determines how you spend your time? Is it you or is it your job? It's your job. Right? Because, it's, and so we have this entire American system built on the idea of master and slave, master and slave, master and slave, master and slave, right? When the Jewish idea of all of that was family. I'm going to teach you this next week. I'm going to teach you about covenant next week. If you start to look at the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel, it speaks something so much louder than anything you've ever seen. It speaks family. I'll show you next week. I'll show you next week. So this is a teaser. Come back next week. But, but that's the thing. On the inside of every single person, let me tell you, let me ask you this. Who determines how you spend your money? Is it you? Let's be real. When you get your paycheck, when you get your paycheck every month or every couple of weeks, whatever, who determines where that money goes? Your wife. Yes, if you're married. Absolutely. But, right? I mean, just look at your bills. Look at your bills. From, yeah, yeah. So here's where my money goes. I get my money in. First, Personally, the first thing it goes to is, is Dream Church. But after that, it goes to Wells Fargo. It goes to Dominion Energy. It goes to Spectrum Internet. It goes to all this stuff. And all that stuff is amazing stuff that we have. My point is, is that most of us, without even knowing it, live our lives enslaved to some kind of system. We make very little decisions independently in our lives. Other people determine how we live our lives. Even, even who you marry, you think, see, okay, Lord, Lord, oh, Lord. A lot of us believe that who we get in a relationship with is completely independent. No, it's not. Who you get in a relationship with is determined by so many different masters in your life that you don't even realize it's determined by. So that's why people will get married to people that they really aren't deeply in love with and five years later realize it and then the whole system blows up. Give you an example. Awesome. Let's say you come from a family that, that is just super well off. But then you meet somebody that you're in love with and they do not come from a family that is super well off at all. Our culture would say, that's not going to work. And so what do you do? Turn away from that, and you go find somebody that's been pretty well off. You see what I'm saying? So, so we, do the, we do this naturally without even thinking about it, and that's exactly what Israel has gotten themselves into, is they have started bowing down to things that they were not designed to bow down to because here's what they believe. They believe those things provide everything for them. So I bow down to my job, even though it's a church sometimes. You know why? Because I am in full confidence that this job is providing for me. It is not. Yahweh is providing for me, and he's doing it by way of this job. But make no mistake about it. 
It is not your employer that is providing for you. It is Yahweh that is providing for you. And when those get out of whack, suddenly we'll start to lay down the things of the Lord for the things of our master. And that is absolutely Baal worship. Israel, number one point, Israel, by way of cultural influence, had turned away from being a bride of God and settled for being a slave to Baal. Listen to this. Anything that lords over you and controls you is your master. Anything other than you or the Lord that determines what you spend your time, your money, your energy, your brain power on, anything other than the Lord or you that determines that is your master. So what determines how much you actually believe what you say you believe? It's how you live your life. Like Jesus said, you could tell a tree by its fruit, right? So you guys know that I am a faithful son of the Lord, not because of my messages, but because of what you see from me when I'm not here preaching messages. That's how you know, right? So you can tell the tree by its fruit, hopefully, in my life. Hopefully you can tell a tree by its fruit, right? So when I look at somebody who is, who is who's, you know, faithful to the Lord, I don't care what they have to say. Here's, here's the couple of things I look at first and foremost. I look at what they spend their time on. I look at what they spend their money on. And then I look at what they spend their passions on. But those first two ones are usually the red flags. Man, I love the Lord. Awesome. What you spend your, what you, what's your finances look like? Debt, 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 and then whatever Lord, whatever I got left over, I throw it to the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever. You, that, but th- this is how we change. And so the reason the Old Testament, let me just, let me just talk about money for a second because I don't ever talk about this, so I got the grace to do it. When it comes to tithe, for example, the church begs people to give 10%. Please, Lord, please give 10%. Bring the Malachi. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this and see if I won't throw up in the floodgates of heaven and see if you won't have room, uh, blessing that you won't have room for. Malachi, great passage. There's one problem. We're not in that covenant anymore. So what do we do? Do we say it's no longer right for us to tithe because we're not in the covenant that requires a tithe anymore? Or, or, Do we look at the fact that we're in a new covenant and say, if 10% was required in the Old Testament on a tablet, then what's required from the heart in the new covenant? So when me and Jordan got married, I said, I promised her um, in sickness and health, for rich or poor, for uh, what's the other stuff? Forsaking all others, you know. You're so in the moment that you have no idea what you're saying. They could tell you to say anything. You have no idea. Um, but but that's, that's what I promise her. So on a tablet, right, I'm, my only technical responsibility to Jordan is this, to be faithful to her and only her, to be faithful in sickness and health, and for richer for poor. That's what I'm required to be to, for her. However, every single day of my life, I go exponentially above and beyond what I am required to do to be married to her. Why? Because I love her. I'm not in a covenant with her based on a tablet. I'm in a covenant with her based on the heart, right? And so when you move from the old covenant to the new covenant, suddenly we don't look to the tablet to tell us what we have to give. We look to the heart to say, what do I need to give to express my love for the one that I'm in covenant with? 
which should, if I'm being honest with you, look way above and beyond what the tablet says. And that's why even us as a church, we don't give away 10%. We give away 15%, and usually it's even more than that as a church. Why do you do that? Because we're not in this because of the old law and the old covenant and because of what we need to do to get in. We're in this to see transformation happen in the globe that comes through the heart. You know what I'm saying? And so, so I just... I, the, the thing that will keep our church from being everything it was designed to be, the thing that will keep it from being everything it's designed to be is, if, is you and I believing the lie that we are at a bare minimum place with the Lord and that's all we'll ever be, which is 10%. We have, set, we have 700 people that engage with this church on a weekly basis, 700 people on average that engage with this church on a weekly basis through all the different things. Most of them don't live in the state of South Carolina. And did you know the biggest portion of our giving this year has come by way of people that don't live in the state of South Carolina? Tens of thousands of dollars that don't live in the state of South Carolina. So the Lord is calling us to step up and say, this is who I serve. And it ain't Baal. It's Yahweh. So before Wells Fargo gets my mortgage payment, Yahweh gets my tithe. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I'm going to stop talking about money for a minute. Y'all getting a little mad. Likewise, much of the Western church, particularly around here, has turned away from being the bride of Christ and settled for being a slave. We worship our jobs, events, and hobbies, and schools, etc., like they provide for us and forget that it is not they who provides for us, it is Yahweh. Then, because we believe this, we'll give them in worship what is meant for the Lord, the one who truly provides. This is what he says. They use this for both. This is what he says. He says, um, she said, I will go after my lovers who give my food and my water and my wool and my linen and my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I'll block her path and I will wall her in so that she cannot find them. And then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband. She has not acknowledged that it was I, listen to what he said, I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, listen, which they used for Baal. So there's a recalibration that happens by the Lord so that we can be in order to align ourselves to receive the fullness of life that we were promised. We like to say all the time, God's promised us life to the full, life to the full, life to the full, life to the full. And none of us want to go through the process of having our world reordered to actually live life to the full. We'll settle for crap life because we're unwilling to let go of the things that would align us for life to the full. So we'll settle for having control because at least I know what's coming rather than releasing to the Lord and aligning ourselves in front of the open floodgates of heaven that we don't have room to contain. So here's part two. The, and I've never taught this, so this is brand new. Y'all ready? Y'all trust me? Punishment is the goodness of God. I just spent a year and a half talking about how good and loving and how everybody's been imputed with salvation, all that stuff. I've just spent a year and a half doing that. So with all that in mind, Let's talk about punishment. Punishment is the goodness of God. In order to rightly see how God responds to our wondering, 
we must first fix how we view sin, judgment, wrath, and atonement. Let me give you an example. If we have given to Baal that which is the Lord's, it is actually good for him to take away that very thing to remind us that it is he who provides and not Baal. So, so in the past, let me give you an example. I, y'all know this, some of y'all, I was thanking the Lord for shutting this door yesterday when I cursed him years ago for doing it. Um, I wanted to go to Belmont University in Nashville to be a songwriter. I got in, got in the school, went through the whole process, got in, and um, it all fell apart about two weeks before I went to, to do it. And I remember, I questioned God. I was like, I don't even, my, my parents remember this. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. Why would God be this? He's so mean. I can't stand, you know what I mean? And then what happened when I got by myself, I can't repeat here. So y'all, know, some of y'all have done that same thing. You know what I'm saying? You get, something will happen in your life and you'll get to a place, you'll start to say some things to the Lord you didn't think you'd ever say. I, you know, so I know how that is. And you'll get to the point, and I'm like, Lord, what are you, you don't know what you're talking, I'm going to take it, I'm going to do whatever I want, you know, blah, 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 blah. And here I am in 2022, looking back, and I'm saying, thank you, God, that you slammed that door in my face. It was your faithfulness. It was your goodness that slammed that door in my face. Because you know what? I would have been a songwriter, I would have had $150,000 in debt, and I would have been making about $40,000 a year, if that being a songwriter. Dumb. Never do that. You know what I'm saying? Right? On the off chance that I wrote a hit song. My point is, is that there, there are these moments when we question the faithfulness of God because of what he takes away. And the reason we question the faithfulness of God because of what he takes away is because we have a grip on the thing that he has taken away that we believe is everything we need to have a good life. So, so if you're in a relationship and you think, man, I might marry this person, and out of nowhere, suddenly something happens and y'all break up, my God, like, Lord, you, or that ain't the one. If you're, you know, if you're in a job that you, you're just, you're just, you know, man, this, this is it, this is it, and you're working and you're working and you're working and you're working and you get fired, right? You could say, my Lord, you know, blah, blah, or you could say, Thank you, God, this wasn't for me, but now you're aligning me to get into the place I'm actually supposed to be. There's just a shift that happens. And so what the Lord is saying in verses 2 all the way down to verses 13 is he's saying to Israel, I'm going to take everything from you. I'm going to take your vineyards. I'm going to wall you in. When your land produces, I'm going to destroy the harvest. And you're reading that, and if you're not careful, you're reading that and say, Lord, he's, he's kind of mean. No, they've turned to Baal. So it's the goodness of God that comes in and starts stripping away everything that they are convinced Baal provides. In other words, all right, if you think that's what provides for you, let's see what happens when I start to take that stuff away. Then you'll find out who really provides. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's the goodness of God. The question when that happen is, happens is whether or not we actually believe everything that we say we believe. Lord, you're good. 
Yeah, when you're on the mountain. What happens when you, and, and even the mountain and the valley begin to be redefined. What if you believe you're on the mountain when you're really in the valley because you believe Baal has started to provide for your needs? And so when he begins to strip that stuff away, you'll get amnesia and believe you're in the valley when he's actually taking you to the mountain where you're reminded that you are not a slave, you're a bride. So, Lord, I'm really walking through a storm. Or, or you're walking into a place that you've never been in before. Don't, don't misunderstand this. The goodness of God is 100% of the time faithful. It never fails. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear anything because you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. My cup runs over. In the valley of the shadow of death. So punishment or wrath or judgment is the goodness of God because it's never aimed at you and me. It's never aimed at you and me. It's aimed at that which stands between us and him. This is not, I've taught this before. So my daughter, if she does something that we tell her not to do, she gets punished for it. Not because we're trying to decide whether or not we still want her to be our daughter. But because we are so assured in the fact that she is ours and our love for her is so great that we refuse to let her settle for a identity that is less than what we know she is. So we hold her to a certain standard as our daughter, not because if she doesn't meet that standard, she's no longer our daughter, but because we know who she is so much so that we refuse to let her settle for a life that is anything less than who she is. Is this making sense? Right? And so when the Lord comes in and starts to take away as a church, the same thing, we've seen this over the years, the Lord will come in and suddenly people will start leaving. And the Lord will start taking away. And what happens when people leave? Y'all don't know this because y'all ain't the pastor of this church. But you know what happens when people start to leave? They take their money with them. And when they take their money with them and you got staff and bills to pay, you figure out whether or not you trust the Lord. And, and in every one of those seasons, you know what we as a church have done? We've tithed more. And we're here today having never lacked. I remember, let me tell you all this story real quick. Because it's early. <laughs> I don't have a lot more. So when we went to hire Ellington, who was our last worship leader. Oh, which by the way reminds me, Isaiah is officially full time now. This week. So yeah, 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 yeah. Isaiah is the biggest blessing that has happened to me since Jordan and Veda. So... <laughs> No, I'm just playing. But man, I mean, close. Um, I'm so thankful you're here, man. Um, also, I, I, I think I've mentioned this, but uh, Matt um, is on staff now uh, part-time, and so is Evan and Jenna. So um, they're married now. So anyway, if y'all see them set, tell them, um, give them encouragement. But anyway, uh, Ellington was our last staff member. He was our first person that we hired. When we went to hire him, our giving was the lowest it had ever been. I mean, back then, y'all think like we're small now. <laughs> we were small. You know what I'm saying? However, we felt like the Lord told us we need to bring him on staff. 
And I remember sitting in our living room, me and Jordan, it was around Christmas time. And I remember telling her, like, I know something we need to do. We might not make it through this year. You know what I mean? But we're going to trust the Lord. And we hired him in February. So two months later, full time. And that next month, our giving almost doubled. And it's never gone down since. But, but here's my point. Why would the Lord allow us to get to the point where we're like, man, I just, I don't know if we're going to make it. Is it because he's not good? Or is it because he was trying to prove to us that we can trust him? Do you see what I'm saying? So, but it all depends on how you process what the Lord is doing. It, Lord, you, Lord, you're just mean. Or is he good? And if you're not careful, you'll hold on to the things that you're not designed for so tight that when he starts to take them away, it'll feel like he's aiming at you. And he's not. You've just become so identified with the thing that you weren't designed for, it feels like he's aiming at you. But let him finish that work because the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith, when it has done its work, will realize that you are mature and complete, lacking nothing. <clears throat> Let me look at verse 10 real quick, and then I'm going to jump to the fun stuff. Verse 10. This is how he ends this passage, or this section. Okay? He says, verse 10, I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. But why? I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. Who are her lovers? Baal. Okay, her master. Because no one will take her out of my hands. Why is the Lord allowing you to walk through the stuff you're walking through? Because he refuses for anything to snatch you from the hands of God. It, it, is, that, it is not the anger or the wrath. It is the wrath, but it's a good wrath. Or it's not the anger or the distance or the, the Zeus-like of God that is allowing you to walk through what you're walking through is the God that is the Father that became incarnate for us and dwelt among us that says, nothing will snatch you out of my hands. So if something came against my daughter, I'm moving heaven and earth to take that thing out. Why? Because nothing will snatch her from my hands. And that's the father. He tells Israel in the first half of this chapter that you have forgotten who you are and have therefore come into agreement with an idea that you are a slave. Does that sound familiar? Where did Israel come from? Egypt, where they were what? Slaves. If you go back to the story of Gomer and Hosea, Gomer has these children. She's in Hosea's house, but then what does she do? She leaves the house and goes back to slavery and to prostitution. Why would she do that? Because there's something in the mind of Gomer that says I'm not worthy to be married to a man like this and live in a house like this. Therefore, I will go back to the thing that I believe I'm worthy of, which is slavery. And Hosea goes and finds her on the block being sold as a slave. 
Because Gomer, even though she married Hosea and was in the house, had still not gone through the process of becoming a bride out of being a prostitute. And because she didn't have her thinking transformed, even though she was in the house, she found herself going back to being sold as a slave. And we ask all the time, just like we ask of Israel, how on earth could she do that? Crazy, except you and I do that all the time. And it might not be going into prostitution, but spiritually it's going into prostitution. And anything that comes in our lives that offers us the things that we know we're designed for faster, we bow down to. Take my money. You know what I mean? What a, and the Lord is saying to Israel, I'm going to come to you, and because I refuse you to be snatched out of my hands and sold as a slave... I'm going to take everything from you until you get back out into the wilderness. And this is what he says in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, I am now going to allure her. I will speak to her in the wilderness. Excuse me. I'll lead her into the wilderness, speak to her tenderly, and there I will give her back her vineyards and will make a valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she will respond and sing as in the days of her youth. Listen, as in the day she came out of Egypt. I'm going to pull her back into the wilderness. When Assyria comes in to Israel, what do they do? They bring them into captivity, which means when Israel goes into Assyria and the southern kingdom goes into Babylon, guess what they are? Slaves. He... He literally brings them back to where they started. They started in slavery. They were brought into a covenant marriage. And in that covenant marriage, they decide to settle for slavery again. And he says, awesome, if you want to be slaves, I'll make you slaves so that you can realize that slavery is not what you think it is. And so that you can remember that it was I who found you in your slavery and brought you out to me. I mean, this is unreal stuff. And he says, in that day, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. What did I tell you Bell means? My master. What is he saying? In that day, you will believe that you are a bride. How will, that, how will you know that you believe you're a bride? Because you'll start to call me my husband, Right? rather than my master. You call somebody a master if you believe you're their slave. You call somebody a groom if you believe you're their bride. So he says, I'm going to bring you back into the wilderness and in the wilderness, I'm gonna restore everything that I took from you because it's in the wilderness that you're going to remember that you are not a slave, you're a groom, you're a bride of the groom. Okay? I will remove the names of Baals from their lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day. And now he's shifting and he's pointing to Jesus. Hosea is. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He does not, I'll make a covenant with them. I will make a covenant on their behalf. 
with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. What does Isaiah look at with Jesus? They'll take all the weapons used for war. They'll be used for fuel for the fire of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Okay. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I'll betroth you in the faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Amen. I love that. I was like, felt like Batman just now. You know what I'm saying? Gotham City. It's a little light. Uh, I don't think that was Batman, but I don't know. Perfect timing though. This is, he's bringing them back into the wilderness. Now, I don't want to make too big of the past two years, but I also don't make too light of the past two years. We've gone through hell. I mean, just like this has literally been about hell, as close to hell as you can get, right, the past two years. Now, I'm kind of being facetious, but like with the COVID jump. You know what I mean? Just, 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 you know. Anyway, I won't get into politics and all that stuff. Um, No, 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 I won't. But... We've been in this. And you know what's happened over the past two years? This, this is what's happened. All right. Here's what government says. Everybody needs to chill out. And the church has said, yes, master, and shut everybody out. You know? Yes, sire. Close the doors. For months. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch online. Man, it's going to be amazing. We're going to turn online. You know? And we did. And millions of people watched online for three weeks. And then the families that were sitting at home watching online said, you know what, we'll catch it next. We'll catch the we'll catch the podcast later. Didn't watch it that week. Never caught the podcast. Two months later, maybe, you know, maybe we should turn on the, the, the live stream today. And two years later, most of those, uh, many of those people, people still haven't walked into the church. And it's not because they're scared of COVID. There is no more COVID. It's because, listen, this is a huge word, and it ain't mine, but I'll, I'll steal it. One generation's compromise is the next generation's captivity. One generation's compromise is the next generation's captivity. One generation doing something that seems completely insignificant will be the next generation's slavery. Solomon marrying foreign wives, it's not that big of a deal. They'll conform to worshiping Yahweh, right? I mean, I'm I'm the king. They got to do what I say. So I'll just bring these women in. They'll worship whoever I tell them to worship, and it'll all be okay. And then Solomon has a son, and that son is raised up in Baal worship. Therefore, he leads the entire kingdom into Baal worship, which leads the entire kingdom back into slavery. One generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. However, one generation refusing to compromise will be the next generation's freedom. And and the Lord over the past two years has made the church realize it is not your programs that got you where you are. 
It's not your giveaways that got you where you are. It's not your lights and your fog that got you where you are. It's not your sound and your rock. And, it's not all that stuff that got, it's not your relevancy that got you where you are. It is I who got you where you are. And when I gave you gold and silver and resources and provision, I gave all of that to you and you turned around and you offered it to Baal. Therefore, therefore, I will strip your vineyards. I will remove the things that you've given to Baal and I'm gonna bring you back into the wilderness. And there I'm going to remove the name of slavery from you and instead you'll start to learn what it means to be a bride. Hello, if that's not what we've been through the past two years, I don't know what is. And if we're not careful, we're going we're gonna to get into this groove of the new normal. Blah. We're going to get into this groove of the new normal, and we're not going to even realize that we have just taken the next three, four, five generations and slammed them in a cage of captivity. We're not even going to realize it, Right? If me and Jordan, as Veda's parents, get into this groove of just saying, I will catch it when we can, we still go, right? If we get into this group, well, Veda is going to be raised thinking it's, it's not of worth. Or if it is of worth, it's of very little worth because everything else that came into the story was worth way more. And then her kids are going to ra be raised and not even know what church is. One generation's compromise will be the next. So the Lord is willing in goodness to strip everything away. And this is my prayer of our church. Strip everything away until we realize that it was nothing but the faithfulness of Yahweh that got us to this point. Nothing. You have what you have and I have what I have because of one thing, the faithfulness of God. And if we ever get that construed and messed up, the Lord in goodness will start to pull those things away. But when we find ourselves in the wilderness, he'll restore it all. God's aim is, last point, always restoration. Always. He tells them that in the wilderness, that they will do all of it. He says that he will speak tenderly to us. He will restore our vineyards. He'll restore our hope where there was once trouble. He'll restore our identity. He'll remove our desire for Baal. He'll establish an everlasting covenant with us. He'll show us as a seed, excuse me. He will plant us as seed in the land and grow us to the people that we were always designed to be. That's the promise in the wilderness. And all of that happens because Yahweh stripped of us that which we attributed to Baal as a slave and returned us to the place of covenant betrothal, our first love. Jesus is the everlasting covenant that God establishes on our behalf. Isaiah, you can hop up here when you get a chance. Sorry, I totally interrupted you writing a note. That was probably a good one too. I'm sorry, man. Why am I saying this? Because I, I have felt... This, and it's not, this is a Columbia and a South Carolina thing. It is a Southern thing. Everybody in the South is Christians. Everybody in the South goes to church. Everybody in the South knows Romans 3 that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in the South knows that. We all know it. We all know the words. We all know the language. We all know the songs, right? If I sang Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound of Savior Wretch like me, everybody can sing it. We all know it, right? We all prayed when we were kids. Now I lay me down to sleep. 
right, which is super morbid. Don't pray this. Pray, Lord, if I should die before I wake, right? Why'd y'all let us pray this? I know, I'm just kidding. If I, if I should die before I, like, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Lord, my, <laughs> my Lord, you know what I'm saying? Good grief. We've all, but, you know, we've all prayed, we all prayed it. Jesus loves the little children, all that stuff, right? But there is a difference in knowing something and saying we believe something and actually living like we know and believe something. There's a major difference. And Yahweh is not interested in you knowing the talk. He's interested in you fully believing that you are what he says you are and starting to walk the walk. Not because you walking the walk is going to determine who you are, but because why would you waste being in the image and likeness of God and live like a slave? Why, why would we do that? When we have access to life to the full through, exclusively through the life of Jesus. Life to the full can only be found in Jesus. That's it. You cannot find life to the full anywhere else. That's why movie stars who are super rich and have everything they want are suicidal. Because you can't find life to the full anywhere but in Jesus. That's it. So we have access to life to the full, but for some reason, we'll settle for living life to the half, if that. And we'll settle for that and we'll wonder why we're miserable and we're depressed and we're anxious and we're worried and we're worried about tomorrow. We're worried about what's gonna happen. We're worried about our finances. We're worried about the economy. We're worried about who's gonna be elected president. We're worried about all this stuff because you and I have failed to get into the alignment that we were designed for, which is bride and groom. I don't come here because I'm required to be here. I don't come here because it's my Christian duty to be here. I come here because I am in a bridal and groom covenant with my beloved, and this is the place where he makes himself most known, where two or more are gathered. So when you and me get in this room and we start to worship like we did today, there, there is a measure of presence that he specifically reserves for when we come together in this room. That's why I'm here. I'm here to get the fullness of the measure that I'm designed for that I honestly cannot get access to when I'm just by myself. And that's why it's so dangerous for us to be like, I can be the church wherever I am. No, you can't. By definition, the church is the church. <laughs> I can, man, I can have church on this park bench. No, you can have relationship on the park bench. You can't have church on the park bench. You can have church in the church. I mean, and, and we, I'm just, I'm asking you guys, We've got to get back to the place of honoring the basic stuff. We're, we're worried about how this happens. We're worried about if there's a rapture or not. We're worried about uh, who all's getting saved and who all's not saved. We're worried about judgment. We're worried about poly We're worried about all this stuff. And we've completely neglected the milk. Honor the bride. You know what I'm saying? Wait completely neglected the basic stuff and we'll, we'll worry about all this other stuff that we cannot figure out unless we honor the one thing. And so I'm, I'm telling you guys, the reason I'm preaching this message today is one, because the Lord wants to, but two, because we're, we're stepping into, I'm not going to say we're about to, we're in the most significant season our church has ever been in. 
And the measure of that significance that you and I see is going to be dependent on whether or not we'll honor what the Lord wants to give us. And that's it. And it's the goodness of God. Listen to me. It's the goodness of God to keep us from the renewal and revival that I've been promised. That's the only reason I started this church. But it's the goodness of God to keep us from that until we're ready for it. And do you know who determines whether or not we're ready for it? You and I. So what's this saying to us? It's saying three things that we need to remember. Can you hear this to Israel? You need to remember that it was I who brought you out of your slavery and into your promise. It was I, the Lord says. When you were nothing, it was I who found you, pulled you out, set your feet on a solid rock and made you the thing that I made myself known to the globe through. We have to remember. Number two, we have to let go of any bail master in our lives and return back to the place of complete trust in the faithfulness of the Lord. That doesn't mean you go quit your job. We need you to have jobs. <laughs> we need everybody to have a job, okay? Doesn't mean you go quit your job. It means you put your job in its right place. If my, you know, if I, if I, don't, I, don't, I don't have this problem because I'm a pastor, but if, if my job tells me that I'm required to do something that I know is going to steal identity or steal a portion of the Lord from me, then that's where trust kicks in and says, no, ma'am, or no, sir, I cannot do that. And if you have to fire me, you have to fire me, and the Lord will put me in something better. However, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's like, well, Josh, that's easy to say. You're the pastor. No, it's not easy to say because my family's livelihood is dependent on you giving. Did you know that? It's not easy to say. Our family paying our bills is dependent on people giving. You talk about trust. And then I'll get up here and the Lord will ask me to say things that I know are going to step on toes. And if I step on too many toes, they'll leave and they'll take their money with them. And that's the money that we have to pay. Our, you know, you see what I'm saying? So I, trust me, I might not be in a job that I have to make those decisions. However, on a daily basis, I have to make those decisions too. So I'm speaking as somebody who has gone ahead of you. But there are times we have to say, this is the standard. This is the line. And if it ever crosses this, it has to go. If it ever crosses this line, my answer is no. And it takes guts and it takes trust. But if you'll remember where the Lord has brought you from, then you can trust that by you making decisions to honor and seek first the kingdom of God, that he'll actually provide for all of your needs. So we, we have to let go of any bales in our lives and return back to the place of complete trust in the faithfulness of the Lord. Last part. And we need to fully immerse ourselves in the bride, which is the church. If, if, if me and my wife had a relationship where every couple of months I called her and asked how she was doing, y'all would say our relationship stinks, right? We, 
we, we I mean, like, either this is a covenant or it's not. You know what I'm saying? Am I like, is that okay to say? It, 60 years ago, that's, that, I wouldn't have a problem saying that, but in 2022, I'm getting canceled right now. Um, <laughs> but I'm telling y'all, like, it, this, is, this is the legit thing. And if y'all think this, is, this cultural junk is over, guess again. And the re- listen, the reason why I'm almost done, I know, I know, I'm done. The reason why we're seeing our culture act insane like we're seeing it act right now, you know why? Do you know the entity that is designed to be the order of society? The church. And when the church told the culture around us that the culture around us can tell the church what to do, suddenly society lost its order and we're seeing it spin in absolute utter chaos. And when the church steps back in and says, we're going to be the church, when that happens, you'll, I promise you, you'll, you'll see society. Suddenly, it won't be as chaotic. Suddenly, crime rates are going to start going down. Economies are going to start leveling out. It, you're you're going to see this. And the reason is, is because the church is the hope of the world, not a political party. The, the, the church. And listen, I can't do church by myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, we need every part of what Yahweh has placed you here to be. We need that. I need you for us to do what we're, we're, let me just give you a heads up. On September 4th, I'm going to tell you, our, this is our plans over the next five years. We're, gonna, we're starting a minute, we're going to have a ministry school. We're going to have a building. We're going to have a building. You mark my words. If I have to take out a mortgage myself and pay for it, we'll have a building, okay? But, like, we're going to have a building. If, if, all, let me, if all 700 people that engage us every week actually tithe, we could pay cash for a building. But anyway. Um, but we're going to have a building. We're going to have a, a community hub where people are in and out every single day. We're going to have spaces in our building that we're going to lease out for dirt cheap to businesses to be everything they were designed to be in the kingdom, in the corporate world, and in the business world. Uh, we're, this is, we're having, we're, me and Matt have already started talking about this. We're going to create an online platform that's kind of like a Netflix. Um, and there's some things that kind of exist like this, but, but you'll learn a lot of interesting things through them. And we're going to start teaching people in a way that is very easily accessible what it means to be in the kingdom of God. We're going to raise up people and send them to different cities. I had a conversation. I went, um, I'm going to end with this. I went Wednesday. Me and Jordan and Veda went to Sheral on Wednesday. And uh, why on earth were we in Sheral? Great question. We went there. Uh, most of y'all don't even know where Sheral is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like North Carolina border, kind of Florence area um, right there. We went there because y'all know Mark and Melanie from the church? Y- y'all remember, y'all know Mark and Melanie, right? Hey, Mark and Melanie, by the way. Um, well, they own a sod farm and a poultry farm there. And they are the, and I don't say this about, about a lot of people, they are the most Christ-like people that I've personally ever met. I mean, they're just the most genuine, awesome people. Well, we went up there to pray over their farm on Wednesday. And so we get up there and, uh, and we're just talking and having a conversation. And man, I love them. They haven't been able to be here in person because um, during COVID, 
everybody just stopped working for some reason. I still don't know how people pay bills when they don't work, but, um, but people just stop working and stay at home, including farm. And so he's having to actually do all the work on the farm because he can't get people to, to work. And um, so that's where he has been. And, uh, but we're uh, praying that they can get consistent work so they can get back here with us because we desperately need them as a father and mother in here. But anyway, they, um, he, we were talking and he said this. He said, you know what's kind of sad? That I have to drive, that we have to drive two hours one way. Shaw is two hours from here. That we have to drive two hours one way to find a church that is about the kingdom. And he said, he literally, he said, there are churches on every corner. There's churches all over the place here, and we have visited every single one of them. They lived there for 30 years, and we visited every one of them. And we have to drive two hours to find a legitimate church. You know what I'm saying? And, and when he said that, I just felt the Spirit say, almost a confirmation, say, we, we have to raise people up and send them to these places. I mean, there's churches on every corner, but there's very few churches in America. You know what I'm saying? And we have to, we have to raise up sons and daughters that are going to go there and have a standard that they refuse to let down because of what the culture around them wants. And if we get enough standard bearers around this country, uh, you, you don't even understand what we're going to see. But that's it. The only difference between us and the book of Acts, the only difference, the only difference, it's not the teaching, it's not the worship, it's not all that stuff, because we're getting as close as you could possibly get to the early church. It's not that. The difference between us and the early church is this. The early church, when the church started, they sold everything and gave it to the church. Statistically, the church today, 10% of the people that attend church support 100% of the church. And I'm not talking about even money. That's included. I'm talking about there was a mindset of the early church that said, I'm going to give my life to see this kingdom come. And they saw it. And the entire, in 40 years, the entire known world to them at that time was evangelized in 40 years because they were willing to give everything they had. Without internet, I mean, we have USC right down the street. If we could get hot enough and bright enough to start to filter into USC, there are 140 countries represented at USC. We, the world is literally at our doorstep. You know what I'm saying? And all it takes is you and me saying, I will give everything for the kingdom to come. So let me pray. Let me pray. I know this was a very different sermon than what I'd normally do, but, but it, it feels right. Lord, I pray right now that you would just begin to redefine for us um, anything that needs to be redefined. But I pray that also you would start to just sift us like wheat, that you would separate the wheat from the chafe. From the chaff, excuse me. That you would begin to separate the protective shell that has been around us from the pure parts of us that are designed to be consumed. I pray that you would separate that. And what you do with the chaff is you throw it in the fire and you burn it in an everlasting fire. It's what you say. What does that mean? It means that you take from us the things that we are not supposed to have on us and you for 
ever destroy it to make sure we can't go pick those things back up. And I pray that you'll do that in us, even in me. You've been doing this in me for months now. But Lord, I pray that you would do that in all of us, that you would begin to get down into the dirt of our lives and anything that is standing between who we are and who we're designed to be and who we are in you, I pray that you would begin to um, not just rip those things out, but you would throw them in an everlasting fire to where we can't go pick them back up again. I mean, this is the, this is the real thing. This is the church. This is the real deal. And if we, if we could grasp half of some of the stuff that we were talking about today and that we experienced in worship, if we could grasp half of that, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and mind has not comprehended what the Lord has planned for those who love him. So Yahweh, I thank you for where you brought us from, but man, where you are taking us is going to it's going to be dependent on our level of trust. And I have never felt a trust like I feel in me right now, ever. So I thank you for your faithfulness that carries us into that. Let me ask you this. Y'all keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. Um, let me ask you this. Is there anybody in the room, and my hand is, is raised first, so... But is there anybody in the room that you would say that you know there are some things that have, that have taken mastery over my life that need to find their right place? Is there anybody in the room? Because that's me. I'm not even like, there, there's so many things in my life that the Lord, yeah, 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 yeah. There's so many things, yeah, y'all can put your hands down. There's so many things in my life that the Lord is saying that right there has taken way too much of a place in your life. I pray Yahweh that you would take those down right now. I pray just like in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, when, when leaders like Hezekiah, for example, when he becomes king, the first thing he does is he goes in and he tears down the high places of worship. I pray that right now that that Hezekiah spirit would begin to flow into our lives where we go find the high places of worship of things that we have placed in our lives that were not designed to be worshiped. And I pray that we'll have the grace to begin to tear them down and put you back in your rightful place in our lives. It's not about priorities. It's about who's king. It's about who reigns. And you alone reign in our lives. You alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, we love you. We honor you in this place. We thank you for how you are just shifting and molding and stretching us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to do this last thing. Um, Tim had to go um, a second ago, but we'll, we'll pray over him too. But I want to just, just say a prayer over the students going back to school this week, the teachers. Um, and, and listen, teachers really need our prayers. You know what I'm saying? Like counselors, school faculty because they get paid very little to do the most important job in our society. I mean, huge. And not only that, now there is the, the what-ifs of what's been happening over the past couple of years. You know what I mean? Can you, I mean, seriously, can you imagine going to a job every day where you're wondering, is somebody going to show up today with something that they shouldn't have? I mean, that, you know what I'm saying? That takes a toll. And so we, so I just want us to cover the schools, um, the parents that are sending them back, and uh, the faculty. And um, I just, 
I think this year is going to be a big turning point, but we're, we really need to lift him up in prayer, not just today, but like continuously. Um, so let's, let's all pray together. Lord, I pray over uh, every teacher. I pray over every uh, guidance counselor, every faculty, every principal, every assistant principal, every administrator. Um, Lord, I pray over every single piece of the school system, every person that is in leadership, that is involved. I pray over every school resource officer. I pray over everybody that is in that system. I pray that you would give them the grace to know that you have this in your hands, that when they show up, you go before and behind them and around them and within them. And the presence of Almighty God walks with them every single time they walk through the doors of that place. And if anybody's going to come against them, they have to go through you first. And I pray that this year would be one of the best years that we have seen in our school system. I, I pray that it'll be the safest year we've ever seen in our school system. I pray that grades and test results and scores will be exponentially higher than they've been over the past few years because you're opening up the minds of this generation. I pray over the students going back to school. I pray that you would give them an experience this year that is greater than what they've experienced over the past couple of years. So many students have had the past couple of years taken from them. And I pray that this year will be such a good year that you'll restore all the experiences, all the friendships, everything that has been lost over the past couple of years. I pray, Yahweh, that you will restore it in this year. Lord, I pray over the parents that are sending their kids to school. That takes an enormous amount of trust. I'm learning that right now. <laughs> oh man, the trust that it takes. So I pray over every parent and I pray just like we prayed over the faculty, I pray that they would know that you go before and behind and around and within. That when their kids are dropped off at school or when they drive to school or when they ride the bus to school and they get there, they're not there alone. That when they leave their protection and parents' protection, Yahweh takes over and begins to protect them in a way that parents never could. So Yahweh, I pray that you would give them that confidence that you are with them and for them and behind them. I pray over the little kids. My daughter's starting kindergarten. Um, I know Sue's going into, I believe, first grade. Is that right? First grade. So I pray over the kids. I pray that you would give them, just like I prayed over the older students, an, an experience this year that makes up for the past couple of years. I really believe that. I believe that they're going to have so much fun that they're gonna learn so much. I pray against any bully that would come against them. I pray against any lie that would come against them. I pray that anytime a lie is spoken over them, that it will be met immediately by the truth from the Lord. That everything in their thinking will be protected by the knowledge of who Christ is. And all of this to the glory of your name. It's in your name, amen, amen. Y'all seriously do that this week as you're just going about your jobs and stuff like that, um, especially Tuesday, since that's when the school kids go back. Um, I really, I want to keep that in mind. Like, I want you to pick these, these teachers that are walking into very unknown environments and students and counselors and, and all the faculty. And um, I just, just continually cover them.